0: The views expressed in this presentation are expressly those of the presenter and do not reflect the official policy or position of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or United States government.
1: Welcome to the Keys to Military Success. This is a show that you've been waiting for. The show that exposes the emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, and social dimensions of a successful military career by none other than the experts on the battlefield, Team Red Alert, led by Christian Sledge. Trust me folks, I've had the privilege of consulting with them, and let me tell you, the results speak volumes. I'm talking about Beast Mode Activated, and the team's not here just to talk the talk, they're here to walk you through it all. We're going to be talking about strategic consultations, operational insights, and decision-making gems. The team will be consulting with strategic and operational leaders and decision-makers extracting tactics techniques, and procedures unlocking your true potential. That's how they roll, and that's just how they get down. So without further ado, let's turn up the volume and get ready to rumble. It's time to hear from my mentor and the team, the Keys to Military Success, Christian Sledge, and the Red Alert. Classes in session. Let's go.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Keys to Military Success. I'm your host, Captain Christian, the Hype Man Sledge, and this is also co-hosted by Accord Cadets, also known as Team Red Alert. So we have Cadet Wade, we have Cadet General, and we have Cadet Cooper. They're all in the room with us, and they will be asking questions. All right. And our home, as you know, is Air Force ROTC, Detachment 4, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the Rebel Nation. Our show is for everybody who sees guidance, mentorship, leadership, advice from none other than the leaders themselves. We provide information for those before, during, or after their military careers in the armed forces. So the time has come for you guys, the customer, to stop watching everybody else ascend to military prowess and start living your own success stories. So today we have a very special guest for all of our customers out there uh, across the United States Air Force and Space Force, the Enterprise, none other than the one and only commander of the Gene Holmes Center, Officer Accessions Citizens Development here at Maxwell Air Force Base, Brigadier General Houston Canwell. He'll be mentoring us on ethical decision-making, making making tough decisions as commanders. Quick snapshot of his life, commissioned via uh, Air Force ROTC from the University of Virginia as a distinguished graduate in 1994, has since then completed 19 assignments leading up to this point in time. He is a pilot by trade, numerous hours across numerous airframe. Fast forward, current commander of the Home Center taking care of 3,300 airmen, 120,000 cadets across 2,058 locations worldwide. So we're talking OTS, ROTC, JROTC, you name it. It's all bundled under the decisions of this gentleman right here. So altogether, uh, 85% of the officer corps sessions decisions are made by this gentleman right here. So ladies and gentlemen, please, everybody, welcome Brigadier General Houston Cantwell to the show. Welcome, sir. Thanks, James. Great to be here with you. Okay. So with that being said, sir, we'll go right into the question. So um, again, we're talking about ethical decision-making, making some tough calls. We understand you've been in the officer corps for a long time. I'm sure you've had your fair share of some tough calls that you've had to make that got you into the position that you are in today, and you're probably still making some tough calls out here. So- we want to just pick your brain and get some mentorship in that department, as a lot of these cadets will be making those decisions very, very soon and here in the future. Sounds super. Okay. So first first things first, given your bio, everybody's read it here. It's it's a long, it's a long sheet. I always ask the the guests to summarize their bio with the information that they want us to know. So if you could, sir, given your bio and given everything that's on it. Please let us know to to us what's important that we understand about you.
3: Okay, uh, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to engage with you all. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to see how you all are framing ethics and decision making, and we'll get to bounce ideas off of each other. So I'm really looking forward to this opportunity. In terms of my bio, uh, I'll just hit just a couple quick bullets, uh, just because it, it frames how I've developed as an officer uh, because we're shaped by our experiences. And uh, so you mentioned I flew planes. Uh, specifically, I flew F-16s. That was the community I grew up in until I was a lieutenant colonel. And then after that, I went off and joined the remotely piloted aircraft community. And I've done that for the last 15 years. So that has also helped shape who I am. And then I've had the honor of commanding Five separate units: uh, two units in combat, and then three units uh, non-combat. But that also has really helped shape the leader and the officer uh, that I am today. Lastly, I'll say it's not in the in the bio, but definitely shaped kind of my outlook on foreign affairs and where the United States sits, uh, you know, in terms of uh, foreign policy. Uh, I was in the Pentagon on september 11th 2001 uh, and saw the plane explode uh into the uh into the uh, building felt the pentagon shake and so that was definitely a uh defining moment in my career as i look back uh over the last few
2: years that's it thanks yeah no problem sir appreciate that it must have been pretty intense i was when that was happening. I was literally in high school, senior year in my my programming class. Yeah. So, yeah, talking about around zero. You're actually man. That's crazy. That puts that a lot of things in perspective. There. So, okay. So, next question, sir. As we as we continue to unravel and 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 reveal who you are, uh, what do you think some of the personal experiences or influences that happened in your life? Are influential to shaping you to who you are today. Whether they're personal, professional, uh, can you kind of help us out? Try and figure out some of those items that shaped you.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll share with you all. I think, like most folks, um, shaped by your family, the home you grew up in. Uh, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a great uh, average house. You know, average is great. Um, probably above average. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Uh, My parents, my mom was a teacher, my dad worked for the government, and uh, we basically lived in Northern Virginia, my whole life. My mom is a Japanese-American, and she grew up in Hawaii, and her family thought it was important for me to be in touch with my Japanese heritage, and so we would visit my Asian relatives uh, every year in the summertime, and I had 14 cousins, uh, four or five uncles and aunts, uh, all living in Hawaii. And we'd go and just learn all about what it was like to live in Hawaii. I mean, not a bad life as a kid, I'll tell you that much. Uh, but got to, uh, hang out with my cousins, um, and just, uh, it was neat. My family, um, uncles and aunts had started an appliance store. And so I would work at the appliance store in the summertime and, uh, learn what it was like to, uh, see my uncles run their own, their own business and that business is open, uh, to this day. So I would say that my family really, you know, like most people helped shape who I am today. Uh, they're solid family, both on my dad's side and on my mom's side. I feel very fortunate that I had such a, a strong foundation from which to, uh, to learn from. Thanks. Okay.
2: So, sir, so was your, was your father an influence on You know, you joining the Air Force or was it completely just on you or like what made you do that pivot?
3: Yeah, no military um, family at all on either side, mother or father. I was the random kid that just wanted to fly planes and uh, took my first flying (laughs) lesson when I was in Hawaii one summer. And uh, just that's what I knew I wanted to do. And so everything I did from the time I was in middle school was focused on having a good grade point average, having good test scores, being physically fit so I could be as competitive as possible and get a pilot slot for the Air Force.
2: That's that's ironic because, you know, fast forward 2024 is still the same. Nothing has changed. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Nothing has changed at all. (laughs) Folks are still being highly competitive, trying to get those maxed out scores so they can increase the probability of them getting selected. That is ironic.
3: Yeah, well, I'll tell you guys, back when I was in ROTC, and you guys think it's competitive now, um, we give probably 500 pilot slots a year, and guess what, maybe 600? You know, So it's a few, few slots for, for an attachment. Uh, my year was the low-water mark for Air Force ROTC, and across the nation, they gave 100 pilot slots. It was so bad that everyone like got out of ROTC before we even got to be juniors because they're like, there's no pilot slots. No one's going to get to be a pilot. Just everyone quit now. But I was like, oh, if I stick around. Maybe I'll have a chance. And uh <laughs> got lucky. I won the lottery and I got one of the pilot slots. So it was, it was a miracle.
2: Wow, that's crazy. And that's, that's funny that that Cadet Wade was just talking about that in our last episode where uh, we talk about PSP numbers and, and you know, how upperclassmen kind of say, hey, the numbers are going to be this and that. Man, it's going to be a little rough, you know, and, and you know, of course, Cadet Wade is, is recommended. hey, don't, you know, at least for the cadets, it's not our place to kind of talk about those kinds of things, especially when we're trying to, when we're leaders of people, right, um, under us and they're already nervous about these kinds of things. Just sticking them with the numbers, you know, or the probable numbers is is probably detrimental to their growth and development. but. The fact that, again, we're still talking about that in 2024, and it was a thing back then when you were going through school in Virginia. That goes to tell everyone else that, you know, the, some of the challenges that are, were existing back then are still the challenges today. And we're still trying to combat and make better for everyone else.
3: Yeah, and my advice to y'all would be control what you can control. So You can't control a lot of things as a cadet, but you can control your GPA you can control your Pixon score. You can control your PT test score. And so there are things you can control. And so focus on those things and uh, and have some discipline. That's the part that can be hard yeah. of a college student is the discipline part because there's so many distractions in college.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so he's preaching. He's preaching out here. Um, yep, we we tell them the same things out here, sir. Trust me, you're not falling on deaf ears. Um, we, we try to, you know, as much as we can to, to mitigate some of that damage because that, that brick wall, it hurts. Uh the one that you run into if you don't have your stuff together. So um so we try to do our best to try to, you know, here comes the wall. We got our hand out. We're here to help get you across the wall, right? But you've got to do your due diligence to get on the other side. So okay. So Pivoting uh, in, in stepping to our, our main topic here, sir, uh, ethical decision making. So uh, I went in there and looked at some from some frameworks and I saw that uh, ethical decision making framework is, you know, breaks down to identifying the issues, getting the facts, uh, evaluating the alternate options, choosing an option and then implementing your decision and then reflecting on the outcome. So given those steps and, and Given your battlefield experience in all those years, which step do you believe would be the most challenging and why?
3: Yeah, I'll have to think about the challenging part that I thought about and reflected on the most was which is the most important. And as I look at, you know, ethics and making decisions, I think the most important piece of this to be successful is to be deliberate on how are you programming your brain? I know that may sound kind of weird, but we are all products of our environment. And I want you all to think about, Mm -hmm. we all have friends that may have made some poor decisions. what, What led them down that path? Oftentimes, it is they may some decisions to possibly hang out with people that tended to go down the wrong path, I'll just say. You know, your parents would always say, don't hang out with the wrong crowd, right? You've heard that from, you know, parents who say that. But choose good friends is what I'm trying to say. And by being an ROTC, I think you're making good right. decisions. Yep. I deal a lot with junior ROTC at the high school level. And the principals of the high schools I go to are always so elated to see me talk to me about the opportunities that their junior RFPC kids have because they know when their junior RFPC kids do that program, the chances of them graduating high school are much higher because there's a lot of bad decisions that go on in high school and kids get diverted, they get in, they get in with the wrong crowd. They never graduate high school and then the rest of their life is an uphill battle. And so I think ethics are very similar. Um, by hanging out with the right crowd, by hanging out with people that are going to make decisions that are ethical, that are along the ethical norms that we are used to in the Air Force helps you realize what the ethical norms, norm, norms of behavior are and so I, I, again, I go back to choosing your friends and the groups you hang out with is probably one of the most important things that you do. And so uh, and uh it's not always easiest. I mean, people will hang out with the wrong crowd for various reasons. And then I would say that that will tend to skew their ethical norms. And then making the right ethical decisions becomes almost impossible for them because they've been
2: programmed the wrong way. Gotcha, sir. So... Okay, so Cadet Wade has a question for you, but I kind of want to lead him into it. Um, So, when do you remember in your life when you started having to, like, when you felt like you started having to make those ethical decisions? Was it, uh, was it young in your childhood, or was it really instilled upon you later on in life? Perhaps your military career, where you had to start making those things. Hey, these are ethical decisions I'm making here. When did you feel like you started making those things happen?
3: Hmm. I think I really deliberately started thinking about it when I was uh, a junior officer. For me, well, again, I was programmed in college. I'll tell you, at the University of Virginia, they have a student-run honor code. And so, again, talking about you are a product of your environment, the fact that I had a student-run honor code about, I will not cheat on this exam, like we would sign this honor code on every document that we've turned in at UVA. I think that was programming me, even maybe a little subconsciously, of, hey, cheating is not something that is acceptable and gets you in the habit of not cheating. I'm not certain that every college emphasizes that. And, and that's, that's not, I, I feel, Lucky that as I look back on my upbringing, that that was something that was part of my, of my upbringing. You know, I think this whole piece about you are a product of your environment is so important. And I'd never thought about it much until I was a captain in the Air Force. And of all places, I, uh, I had neck problems, full well, neck problems from flying that 16, A lot of G-forces, Causes your neck to get messed up. And uh, so when I was getting a master's degree in D.C., I took the opportunity to uh, get acupuncture. Because I was trying everything. Uh, chiropractor, massage therapists, uh, all kinds of physical therapy. But I was pulling out all the stops and I found an acupuncturist who helped needle my upper back and my neck. And I remember one time I was seeing this lady... She's probably, you know, older lady, probably like 50, like as old as I am right now. So at that time, seemed like a really old person to me. And uh, we were just talking about random things. And I, I alluded to her something about the fact that China is, you know, bad and violates all these human rights issues, right? They're unethical, basically. I, I basically told her that during one of my, in the, one of my appointments. And she attacked me like I was, I don't know, like the biggest girl she'd ever talked to. And I'm like, how the heck she attacked me? Like, <laughs> I'm an American. Like, we have the highest ethical standards in the world. And the example she used was, well, how ethical is it for you to dump your elderly in, you know, basically elderly care places and, you know, your families just put them on the side of the road like they're worthless. Whereas in China, right, they take care of all their generations of their families because they think it's unethical to just leave the elderly to fend for themselves. And we in America, just like she said, dump them on the side of the road and hope someone takes care of them. And that was the first time it hit me that ethics is a really complicated thing, (laughs) a really complicated issue, and that I had been programmed my whole life to think that we are ethical and the Chinese are not ethical. And yet this lady just gave me an example where I had to reflect and go, huh, yeah, maybe letting elderly fend for themselves Maybe that's not the most ethical thing that we do as Americans.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes we get it from the most unexpected places. And and, and like I said, it's driven from a lot of things, whether it's, you know, our upbringing or just our battlefield experiences, life experiences, things of that nature. Um, And like you said, the product of our environment, if we see it, we just think it's that's it. Right. And when it's not until we start questioning it or seeing something else that we really start digging in and looking ins- looking inside and seeing if if we're making the ethical decision that we need to make.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I think a lot about being a fighter pilot. And in my career, we've changed from dropping dumb and unguided bombs to pretty much every weapon we drop now is GPS or laser guided. So my question to you guys is, Is it unethical to drop dumb bombs at this point? Is that unethical? Because we know that if you drop dumb bombs, you're going to kill extra people with collateral damage. You're going to kill civilians, basically. And we all know that killing civilians is bad, and we should try to minimize collateral damage. So are we now at the point where it's considered to be unethical, to be, you know, dropping bombs uh, that are not precision guided to the intended target? I don't know. Like, that's my question to you guys, too. I don't, I don't know if, I, if we have an answer today, but something definitely worth talking about is at the detachment, as we look at the future of warfare in the 21st
2: century, where are we on that? Absolutely, sir. So I'll let, I'll let the, the cadets kind of answer on that, too, but I, I know you have a good point. If we have the capability of striking the target and only the target, then why we waste our time trying to hit anything else? It doesn't make sense to us. I know in the RPA world, you know, I was out there at Creech. It's my home planet, as I call it. You know, you got to go through a lot of things in order to, you know, shoot that munition and you got to make sure you're dead on and you know what you're doing. So just to you know, throw a weapon out there and it's it's dumb. uh, I don't know. Right. Exactly. It doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. And then going beyond that and how we have been able to use our capabilities, whether they're cyber or logistics, in order to hit a certain effect. And we, we don't even have to blow it up anymore, right? So should we, should we blow it up? Or can we just use our cyber ability to just disable it? And that would do what we need it to do, right? That's the mission. So uh, it brings a lot of ethical questions out there. Like, how do we hit the target without like necessarily blowing it up, right? Do we, re- do we really need to do that? So, Hey, let me
3: add on that real quick, because you talked about uh, mainly kinetic operations, and then you alluded to some non-kinetic operations. I'll tell you, I find it interesting that on the battlefield, oftentimes the tactical level commanders will have more authority to kill the enemy and you know, perform kinetic strikes. Then they will, at the tactical level, to do non-kinetic operations like either a cyber or an information operations or some type of again non-kinetic operation. Which I think, wow, that's even crazier that we allow our tactical level commanders to make the decision to kill someone. Which, if you look at you know the ethical manuals, if you will, that's like one of the most unethical things that we do as human beings. And yet we give them the authority to do that, but not to launch an information operations campaign at the tactical level. That's great.
4: Building on to that, I think the training and the education that I've come up through, I've had just a little background, mechanical engineering. So we go through like a lot of ethics classes. It's on, you know, <laughs> building bridges or creating something that you make, whether it has an impact on the environment or even buildings like if you're going to place a building in the middle of a city how do you create that building without you know putting a negative effect in the place that you drop it and i think it is the same thing for our military and how we go about conducting operations that affect lives i think we have the technology to be able to make stealth aircraft and hypersonic weapons i think we can do our due diligence to be as ethically know impactful with our decisions as we can regarding you know any life that's that's pretty much my point of view on that put it simply general what what do you think
0: um okay so i i honestly it's it's a hard topic to even for even my brain to kind of wrap around and I haven't had that many ethics classes, so I'm not quite there yet in my high level classes, but I think honestly like growing up for me is like just the thought of like and even now, like, the thought of, like, ending someone's life, just, just, for me, it's just wrong. But it's like, there comes that challenge and that barrier of, like, well, I need to protect me and the ones that I love and the country that, the greatest country on earth. So it's like, at what point can we, or what point is it okay to take someone else's life to protect ours? How um, how many can we take to protect ours? And you know, at the bottom of the line, end of the day, only take the ones that are necessary. Like, don't do n plus one. Take n, and even if you can, n minus one. If you really can.
4: Yeah, that's that's a really good point to put it. And I think talking about allowing those decisions to be made by ethical level leaders, you know, maybe even a second lieutenant coming in or first lieutenant <laughs> captain. I think it is as you come through the the training pipeline of Rossi or whether that be you
0: know
4: yes. I guess or even you know UPT I think it is it's very empowering and it's it kind of gives you a sense of pride of what you're doing just to know that hey somebody's gonna put this decision in my hands so you know as I'm sitting back here at the library at UNLV studying and doing my due diligence on my ethics homework I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put a little bit more thought into that homework and those things because I know I need to build up those those muscle memories and my ability to make ethical decisions because I know it's going to matter someday.
2: So given that, sir, and I think that's very, very ironic. I mean, I'm I'm approaching 20 years in the Air Force. Sir, you have your years. These youngsters are, are about to just get it started, but they already kind of understand the fact that, you know, very soon that those kind of decisions are going to be in their hands. And I know we went to the extreme measure uh, but this is what we do, right? And Colonel Young will tell you, this is what you do. This is what we're sold up to do. So uh, it's going to be just a matter of time when those things start happening. So I'm glad that you guys are actually thinking of that because that's what your strategic leaders are, are wanting for you guys to think about it.
3: Yeah, let me put a plug in because uh, I was an engineer undergrad mm-hmm. and so I didn't get too many humanities courses. I was a systems engineer at Virginia and uh, I graduated in four years. So there wasn't a whole lot of room in my, so in my curriculum to do like non-math and science stuff. So it wasn't until I was in grad school. But when I was in grad school, I took my first ethics class. And that is when I realized, I don't know <laughs> I'm not imagine. kidding. Yeah, like, it's it's it is crazy. And Plato. And I'm like, How can dudes that were alive thousands of years ago be smarter than me when I have access to all this information on the internet, right? And yet these guys like really thought about deep stuff and I can barely follow their thought processes. It was nutty. Yeah.
0: So I think for me, when I was um, going into this program, it didn't really quite hit me until I was over at Hobart Airfield and on an off-air trip. And we were talking to a couple of fur shirts, and one of the fur shirts there kind of put it in perspective for me, and she was saying about no matter what job you have in any role of the military, whether it's force support, LRS, under MSG or mission support type, or those operational where it's like you're on the front lines, no matter what you do, if you're wearing the, the uniform or even if you're contracted and you're helping out the military, you are ultimately going to assist someone, someone's death because you are working for the people on the front lines. If you're if you're one of those people on the back lines, you're working for that front line person. So you're going to help assist someone with that kill no matter what you do. And I think that's kind of what changed my perspective because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do back then and I was thinking maybe I could just do something on the back line so I didn't have to run into assisting and killing people but when she said that I was like oh dang no matter what I do no matter what job I do when I put on that uniform it's gonna happen
4: yeah that's a that's a great story I will talk about my kind of point where I are a little bit deeper one day so sir I don't know if you know but here at UNLV at December sixth, we recently had a uh, a school shooting and it was a very tragic event. We had deaths and people shot and it was you know it was very hard at the end of the semester and I was in the building that was right next to the uh, the incident and I was walking out trying to you know leave the scene and as I was walking out i uh I saw one of the, the gentlemen that got shot, and that was the first time that I'd ever seen somebody who'd been shot before. And he was the only one from the incident that survived and he was dragged as he was bleeding out to the back of a police car and he was driven to the hospital. But the rest of that day, I I couldn't even I couldn't put it in words like how, you know, my my thought process was or what I immediately thought, but I knew something in my brain clicked that made me think about my future. And I'm like, I don't know what connected it, but I'll be going to UPT soon, and maybe down the line, I'll be somewhere down the point where I'm in a position where you are, or making those decisions where things happen and lives are affected, and it it just made it that much more serious, and I thought back to, you know, like my training, ethical decision and all that, and as you come through your AS100 classes in ROTC, you know, you learn about John Boyd and the OODA loop and these things, and... Think, man, am I am I really prepared for this? What am I thinking about? I don't even know what these decisions I'm gonna make in 15, 20 years are from now and how big they will be. So as as I kind of tie that back to you, would you say that your training coming up through your commissioning source or any education is adequate to prepare you for some of your hardest decisions? And what were what were some of the things that you were foreseeing as you were coming up the ranks of, I'm gonna have to make this next big decision. I'm gonna I'm going to have to impact some lives. Hmm.
3: hard for me to pinpoint a single decision or time in my career that, you know, I, I hit that fork in the road. Um, a lot of my decisions, <clears throat> I'm a collaborator. I like to bring other folks into the decision-making process to see if there's anything I'm missing. Most decisions I made as a commander, you know, talking to my lawyer, talking to my deputy, talking to my command chief, might be talking to a, a squadron commander. But all these folks, mm-hmm. you know, how are they looking at the challenge, the pluses and the minuses. I feel more comfortable in how I develop my overall decision making process than I would say my ethical and moral compass. And I I kinda already talked about how I feel that was developed, and, and everyone's got to kind of think through that themselves of, you know, how comfortable are you that you've developed a, a solid moral compass? And again, I feel fortunate that I did grow up in groups <clears throat> that pointed me literally in the right direction, even though I didn't know I needed to be. <laughs> And, uh, hopefully you guys are helping to self-police your detachment and those you work with, because that'll pay dividends mm-hmm. with all the people that you hang out with in the long run. I heard an interesting comment by General Slice a few months ago. General Slice is the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. And he is often asked, Hey sir, is there anything, you know, if you could go back, and you know, tell yourself when you're younger as a lieutenant, you know, what did you not know back then that you needed to know to succeed later, you know, later in your career. Mm-hmm. And he's quick to say, Hey, look, you know everything you need to know now as a second lieutenant to succeed. He said the challenge is having the courage to make that decision. Because more often than not, you're going to know what the right answer is, but there may be peer pressure, there may be uh, loyalties, there may be things that you're like, oh, you know this is the right decision, but you know, do I really have to confront that other cadet and tell them that the hair's out of rags? Like I am a, I don't like to confront people and it's stressful for me, So it's easier if I don't talk to that cadet and tell them that they need to get a haircut. Or, you know, uh, especially if it's a female, now there's a whole gender Mm -hmm. thing. It's even more uncomfortable at this point. I mean, right? And so so what I'm saying is there's a courage piece to the whole ethics that that I think is, is as important to the conversation because you have to have the courage to be able to make the right decision. Because oftentimes there'll be reasons why it's easier
2: to make the wrong decision. I thought that was really cool that you brought up the, the not the gender oh. thing. We we know that already. I'm talking about the concept that you they, know. they, they are, you already know right mm-hmm. you already know. And we literally before you logged on, sir, uh, Cadet General here. That's literally her name. She was literally saying, "Hey, after after you leave." Uh, and after I graduate, I'm going to still be calling you for advice. And I was oh, yeah. like, You already know the answer. You don't have to call. We taught you everything you need to know. As long as you stay within those basics, you can choose your own adventure and make the best decision that you think. And we most likely are going to hit the right one. So, given the information. So, I thought that that was kind of funny and ironic because we literally just had that conversation before you jumped in there. That was a good
3: one. Yeah, General Swife, he likes to tell a story about showing up to C 130 training. He's a brand new second lieutenant, and C-130s have enlisted on their on their crew. And uh, he says shows up the scheduling board, and there there's a bunch of guys checking the schedule, and uh, some are enlisted, some are officer. And uh, he's his first assignment, right? He's brand new, and uh, he introduces himself. Hey, I'm you know I'm I'm Jim. Hey, Jim, I'm Tom. Hey, Tom, I'm Joe. You got Tom, Joe, and Jim. And hey, look, we're on the schedule tomorrow. Okay, great. So he's like, oh, I guess you know it's a more relaxed environment in the real Air Force. Like everyone goes by their first name, like no rank. Then they get on the plane the next day and they fly a mission and the enlisted guy's going, hey Tom, you know, check the gear. All right, Joe, gears down, hey Tom, and like it's his first name the whole time. And then Lieutenant Slife gets back to the debrief and the enlisted are cleared off. An instructor pilot rips him a new one. He's like, do they teach you anything in RTC? Like, why are you people allowing the enlisted to talk talk to address you as a first name with no rank? Like, what are they teaching you? And he's like, I knew what the right thing was. I should have corrected the enlisted to tell them, Hey, you know, we need to address by our, you know, by our name and rank. Uh, but he's like, I guess it's just the way they do it in the real air force. And uh he says he will never forget that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> So that was pretty funny because I, I mean, it, there is a a bro cis network. Yep, we commonly have to let folks know, hey, you are this and you are that, and it's it's that's it's the reason why it is right. There's a reason why that is there. Okay, sir. So I've known that again, given your your battle experience, as we like to call it out here,
1: you you've made some
2: tough decisions in, throughout your career. Which of those tough decisions? I'm not saying a specific one. Which ones usually end up impacting you personally the most?
3: Uh, Oh, for me, yeah, for me, it's the uh, when I got to make personnel decisions Mm -hmm. that are going to impact people's lives. Like, you know, when you become a commander, your official job title is now decision maker. People just want you to make decisions, right? (laughs) Right. It's so bad that a lot of commanders when they get home, You know, their their family may ask them, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? Don't care. Just don't make it. I don't want to make the decision. Okay? Someone else make the decision. I've made way too many decisions today. I don't care where we go as long as I don't make the decision. Like, that is a thing. Not even joking. Right. So, so commanders will joke about that because everyone just wants to make a decision on things. So, I get used to just, you know, I don't have much information, but I make the decision. Just, Here's, a, here's what we're doing. Just go start the plan. Um, but when it comes to personnel decisions, you know, they're, it's so complex because, you know, you're talking about discipline, you're talking about good order, uh, morale, you're talking about enforcing standards, accountability, like there's so many factors that come into a lot of personnel decisions, not only for holding people accountable, but also offering opportunities for like who should win the award. Who should get the coveted position moving forward? There's like so much talent out there. And so those decisions are the ones that I really use as much time as possible on when I'm thinking about, you know, what's the right decision.
2: Has any of those decisions that you've made been unpopular?
3: Unpopular.
2: Oh yeah, I'm certain. I'm certain. Lots of decisions. I mean, when,
3: I mean, I was a wing commander. (laughs) When you're a wing commander, you're definitely not making everybody happy. (laughs) I mean, I did, I did dorm inspections. Right. There's no way the airmen were thinking, "Yay, Colonel Cantwell, he's inspecting <laughs> the dorms again." What a guy! <laughs> he's awesome. Well, to them, I'd say, tighten your <laughs> up because there was drugs all over my dorm. Oh so man! Stop doing drugs. Oh man! Right. And so there, was, I wasn't doing it because I thought it was fun. I was doing it because there was a good order and discipline problem.
0: Oh.
3: Um, so, yeah, when you're dealing with good order and discipline, you're going to always feel the hate, but that's just the way it is. I mean, young people make some bad decisions, and you're responsible for making the unit better.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: I will. I, I do want to share with you guys one operational decision I made that was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. Oh, by all means, sir, please. And, uh, and I still, to this day, you know, still not convinced I know what the right answer was flying a two-ship f 16s <clears throat> I'm the wingman. We're flying uh, convoy support, a 100-vehicle convoy. And this thing is like half a mile long. And they're going like 30 miles an hour through the deserts of Afghanistan. And we're up at 20,000 feet using our targeting pod to scan the road ahead of this 100-vehicle convoy. And there's a JTAC embedded. It's named Jaguar. And Jaguar is talking to us throughout the day. We have to fly overwatch for this convoy for five hours. That that's a long time. Let's go to tanker, come back. Go to tanker, come back. We have a tanker every hour. And so we've been hanging out with Jaguar for a long time. They'd go through little towns, then move on, another town, move on. And uh we're just hanging out, making sure there's no one planting IEDs in front, no one's attacking them, ambushing them from the front or back, and just again letting Jaguar know what's going on in and around this 100-vehicle convoy. The sun goes down, so we throw our night vision goggles on. We've got laser-guided bombs. We've got GPS-guided bombs. And we're armed to the hilt, ready to attack whoever we need to attack. And as the convoy's pulling through another town at night, I look over the canopy rail of my F-16, and it's like something out of a James Bond movie. And uh, so it's like out of a James Bond movie. I'm looking over, and no shit in my night vision goggles i see tracer fire i see heavy machine gun fire i see rocket propelled grenades being launched at the convoy and i'm like holy like these dudes are under attack like this is what we've been waiting for oh my god viper one do you see this yes what should we do (laughs) like like what do we do do we attack the enemy Do we not attack the enemy so we call jaguar jaguar Viper, nothing. you have been talking to this guy for four hours, and now we can't talk to him. You know why we can't talk to him? Because as soon as they started getting attacked, they turned on all their electronic jammers, so that they so that the bad guys couldn't detonate any remote-controlled explosives. But that gets rid of all the communications between the jet, the fighter jets, and the, and the JTAG. So we keep calling Jaguar. He's not there. So we can't get you know. Cleared hot. We can't get clearance to deliver munitions. But in the rules of engagement, there's always the self-defense rule that says if the, if the coalition forces are under direct attack, you can attack the enemy. We have that rule that we could operate under. Problem is they are now in a town. And as we look around where the, where the fire and and the grenades were coming from, it was coming from the town. And so now we're like, all we have is 500-pound weapon. Dude, 500 pounds of explosive can do some serious damage to a town. And you're going to probably kill some civilians. So now we're weighing, all right, our good guys are under direct attack. But from the firing positions, if I drop the weapon, chances are I'm going to cause collateral damage and potentially kill some civilians. Now I've got an ethical dilemma on my hands. i got to defend the good guys. I could potentially harm some civilians. So we're like, I don't know what to do. Like we're in a no win situation here. Hey, let's do a show of force. That's a great idea. So we go down to the two ship, down to 500 feet, and we go 500 miles an hour, light the afterburner, ex- extinguish some flares to show them that air power is in the house. Mm-hmm. And if you don't stop firing, we're going to blow the shit out of you. Well, they see our afterburners and they, if I could probably, if I could get a video on each one of these machine gunners, they probably gave us the middle finger because they did not care at all that two F-16s were flying over this convoy. They just kept attacking the convoy. And they were like, well, maybe we could drop a weapon because like, there was a little bit of space between the convoy and where the machine gun emplacements were which were in the town and then you know, them. Like, I don't know. What if the weapon uh, hits the convoy? or What if the weapon goes into the town? They like, like, all right, we won't do a warning shot. Man, I don't know what the hell we do. So we ended up not attacking the firing positions. We called back to the operation center, and we asked how long would it take for an AC-130 to show up. And so they said an AC-130 was 10 minutes away. So we called in an AC-130, gave them the coordinates of where the firing positions were. They get over the target area. We use their 105-millimeter howitzer, and we watch them take out all four gun emplacements, in like two minutes. But to this day, I always wondered what was the right solution. Like we have maybe high angle straight. We could have scraped those enemy positions and that would have reduced the collateral damage uh possibility. Um but again that was a ethics were involved, rules of engagement were involved, uh a lot of things came together in the heat of battle. Luckily there were no actual casualties on the coalition side, so no one got hurt. So that was a good news story. Um, obviously, some of the terrorists got killed by the AC-130, but uh, but we were just spectators. At that part of the story.
2: Yeah, copy that. So that that kind of answered one of my questions that I had for you later on. Was was there any decision that you made that you know you still kind of reflect on these days, or is it just nope? That's a decision. Stuck by it. We're good. We're moving on. But I think it, as it gets more complicated. You can't help but to go back and reflect on that. So that makes perfect sense, sir. You answered for one of my other questions that I had for you. So as we wrap this thing up, because I know you got things to do, folks to meet and places to go. So the last thing I wanted to kind of wrap up with you was what is the one thing or the series of things that you want today's cadet core around the enterprise to know? When it comes to making those tough calls and those hard decisions that you have to make in the future, or they have to make in the future, what was the one thing you would want to say to them?
3: The one thing I want to say, I would go back to a point I've already made, and that is have the courage to make the right decision. Have the courage. These decisions are difficult, and oftentimes no one's going to be quote checking your homework, Have the courage. Because a lot of times, these are decisions that you're going to make that no one will know. Maybe on your own. Heck, you may not even be around any Air Force people. Just have the courage to make the right ethical decision. As you continue to get in the habit pattern of making the right decision, it will eventually become a natural habit for you. And it will become less and less difficult
2: to make the right decision. Perfect. So with that, sir, that ends the interview. I want to kind of uh, highlight something for you, a decision that you did make that actually had a very positive impact. While you were out there at Creech, you were the 732nd Operations Group commander out there. And oh, I would say about that had to be 2014. You were still floating around there, sir. A young tech sergeant came through your office with a package in his hand. Full-service dress blues, needed to get Colonel Clough's signature. Nervous, but he was on a guard, so he knew how to stand at attention. if anything. Went in there, saluted you sharply, sat down with you, went over the package. Say, hey, this is a pretty sharp package, right? This is a really, really sharp package. Now, you, you put the package aside, you, you know, we start having a conversation. That was me, by the way. Put the package aside, but I'm, I'm trying I'm, I'm trying to start digging into you, right? figuring out what you know what what I really need to know. You you we asked a series of questions and I'm answering it and I'm cool. I think I'm doing all right. I was like I think I'm doing okay, right? And I'm, I'm I'm good. I'm good with this person's signature, but if I can get the if I can get the rest, I, I can, I'm gonna get it. So, but you got me. I, I you pinned me and I'll never forget this day. You you literally asked me, I was a tech sergeant at the time and I was only a 7-year tech sergeant and you said you are a sensor operator, a fully qualified sensor operator on the RQ 170 at the 30th. Why the heck would I take a risk? You're qualified. Why would I take a risk in, in something that I know you can do well, right? And take a risk and make you an officer. And I'm not sure about that, right? I'm not sure how you're going to progress or how how what impact you're going to have. I know this already. Why this? And you literally asked me that, and I did not see that question coming at all. I could not believe my ears. I was not ready for that question. And you got me. pin me. And I sat there and thought about it for a second, and I, I answered it, but I... I- I did not know if I answered it correctly or not correctly, or to to my heart's content. I didn't have the answer. I didn't have the full on answer. So ten years later, after all this, now you're you're signing off on my, you know, promotion readiness file paperwork, right? Same same guy. Cool. So I was like, okay, this, I'm, my life is in his hands again. I said, if I ever get a chance to talk to him, I will be able to answer that question. I'll be ready to answer that question. So. And the answer is this. I can't guarantee that I'm not going to make mistakes. I can't guarantee that I'm not going to always say the right thing because I got that wrong, too. I can't guarantee that, you know, everything that I do is going to be 100 percent perfect and I'm going to get every ride right. And I'm not going to get hooked. I can't guarantee that. But what I can guarantee is that if I was put on the other side, that I would do well by my people at all times. Being seven years enlisted, I realized there are some things that enlisted members go through that i as a cgo could help out with because i understand the, the both sides of the fence so given that information i would take that and try to make those enlisted members lives better and that's what my primary drive was to make those people's lives better to make all people's lives better so that was my answer But the risk part, right, you lost a fully qualified sensor operator, sir, on a a very unique platform. You lost one, but you ended up gaining like a hundred and some odd cadets that I was able to help graduate. And I promise you that they are compassionate. They have high energy. They are hype men and women. They are ready to do their thing. They're motivated, they're sharp, right? And they care about their people. And I hope that trade-off was worth the squeeze 10 years later. I really do hope so. From the bottom of my heart, I appreciate the endorsement. I appreciate uh, having faith in me because I was able to get the signatures. I got picked up and I went to missile school and I went to cyber school and I'm an ROTC instructor and I have a bunch of cadets that are Rolling through my office all the time And I enjoy that part that I get to help them Shape their lives They're going to take care of those enlisted members I know it because I was able to help At least be able to help them out and shape those things So from the bottom of my heart, from my family to yours Thank you so much Thank you for your mentorship, your guidance Thanks for the for the endorsement I definitely could not have done it without you I really, really appreciate that, sir
3: hey, I, uh, I can't thank you enough For sharing that story with me I'm not I'm not kidding. That was, uh, I'm gonna share that with my whole family
2: tonight. It was a worth the journey. I really appreciate it. I tell them, I tell from now on, every enlisted person that comes across my desk and says, I need help becoming an officer. I said, be prepared to answer this question. Cause I was not ready for that question. You got me good, sir. That was a good one. And, and but you were absolutely 100% right. But I, I, I definitely told, tell every last enlisted person that who wants to pursue the commission, I say, you better be ready to answer that question because that'll, that'll answer a lot.
3: Well, I, it, I, honestly, I was not trying to stump the dummy. <laughs> uh, I'm,
1: seriously, <laughs> I, I'm not a
3: stump dummy kind of person, but, uh, but that, that's a tough question. Holy cow, I cannot believe I asked that. Man, I've gotten, I've gotten soft in my old age. I used to be hard.
2: Yeah, I, so to I did hard. too. I did too.
3: <laughs> well, hey,
2: I'm I'm, yeah.
3: I've really enjoyed this hour with you all, and, uh, Captain says thank you for, again, for sharing that story. More importantly, for going back to my first point I made, being that, that foundation and that community that these cadets need to help set their moral compass uh, by engaging these kinds of conversations, by being an example for them to follow, um, all of that is, uh, goes into um, forming that community that they need so that they start to get in the habit pattern of making the right decision and uh, putting them on the right path. So can't thank you enough for reaching out, letting me be a part of it, and then again for uh, bringing me full circle with, uh, with, your, with your story. Thank you so much.
2: Yes, sir. Of course. Ladies and gentlemen, again. Commander of the Home Center, Brigadier General Houston Cantwell. Again, sir, thanks for uh, hanging out with us, and we will see you on the other side. Also, awesome. Best
3: of luck. Now you guys get to upgrade and move to talk to Chief McKean.
2: Yeah, I'm excited about that one. <laughs> thanks for uh, giving us that plug-in as well, sir. Again, saving the day. All right. Best of luck to y'all. All right. See you later, sir.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Keys to Military Success with Team Red Alert advised by Christian Sledge. Christian Sledge is a prior enlisted officer of the United States Air Force with over 20 years of military experience. Team Red Alert was assembled by the members of the Afroatsy Detachment 4 at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in 2023. This team has answered the call for the need for military leadership, knowledge, and enlightenment, and is dedicated to providing you with the keys to military success. Remember... As you embark on your own journey to success, lead with a kind heart. Have respect, care for others, and the mission will take care of itself. With the keys to military success in hand, the possibilities are endless.